Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to another great episode of the Mind Body Musings podcast. This is your host, Madeline Victoria Moon. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with author and art dealer Bridget Mayer. Bridget is an art dealer in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She opened Bridget Mayer Gallery on Philadelphia's historic Washington Square in 2001. In July of 2016, the gallery evolved to a private gallery and consulting practice. Mayer represents artists from Philadelphia, New York, and around the world specializing in contemporary painting, sculpture, and photography. The gallery also deals in secondary market artwork sales and private and corporate consulting. Gallery artists have won many prestigious awards, including the Pooh, how do you say that? The Pooh Fellowship in the Arts, Guggenheim, Guggenheim Grants, Pollock Krasner Foundation Awards, the Miami University Young Painters Competition, and the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts Grant. Bridget Mayer Gallery has been featured on CNN Anderson Cooper 360 is a small business on the rise and was recognized as a recommended Philadelphia arts destination in the New York Times Magazine. In 2013, Mayer was named one of the top 500 galleries in the world by Bulin Artinfo. I, I don't know how to say any of these words. Um, but she was also featured in Tory Burch Foundation's Women to Watch series. Mayer has been a featured speaker on many panels in the Philadelphia area and has guest lectured at a number of university universities where her talks focus on how emerging artists can promote their work and sustain a career in the arts. A graduate of Bucknell University, Mayer was an active member of the university's art board for several years. She's currently a board member of the Arts and Business Council of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Vox Vipidly? I have no idea. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. All right. So Bridget is really awesome and really, really inspirational. And she sent me her book called The Art Cure, which goes into the details of her life, the tremendous adversity she was faced with, and how she overcame that to become such a successful woman, obviously, from this bio. Did you hear that bio? She is on top of it. She is ruling this art space in an inspirational, motivational, encouraging way for artists, and she's really living in alignment with herself. The adversity she faced as a young child, as a small girl, and all of the different ins and outs and webs and flows and all the things she faced in her life contributed to this very successful business. So if you ever have this idea that I can't do this because of my upbringing or I can't do that, those are called limiting beliefs and they're holding you back. And Bridget is a great example that you can break through those limiting beliefs and really cultivate the life that you desire. So I really recommend that you check out The Art Cure, the book, um, get a copy of that. But this episode is just going to really blow your mind, honestly, with what she's about to share with you about her life. I'm really excited for you to listen to this one. I know it's going to enlighten you in so many different ways about areas in your life where you too can really take control in your dreams and make the things happen that you once thought you couldn't. So before we head on over, I've got some announcements and I'm really hoping you stick around, listen to all these. I'll make them as quickly as possible because I know you're excited. Listen to Bridget. Um, So the first one is the podcast of the week. And this comes from Dainty Dachshund. Dachshund. 
Um, and they say, great podcast with five stars. I came across your podcast while just looking for positivity. I've always struggled with emotional eating and self-image. I've noticed a change in my overall well-being since I started listening to your podcast. I look forward to listening to the amazing guests you feature. Thank you, Miss Dainty Dachshund. I really appreciate that. I appreciate every single person that leaves a review. So if you haven't left a review, that's an amazing way to support the show. You can also become a Patreon of the show. And that means you can donate as little as $1. So either you can support the podcast by donating as little as one buck per episode I come out with by going to patreon.com slash mindbodymusings and you can become a Patreon there. You can leave a review. That's a great way to support the podcast. And the third option is to send the podcast to a friend. And this is an option that I would really love if you would do. If you have any friend in your life that you know would appreciate this podcast, could learn from it, maybe an artist in your life would really like to hear this particular a message in the story or maybe last week someone you think would really appreciate coots or going all the way back in the archives to a year ago just send one friend today one of these episodes or just send them the link to the iTunes show that's a great way to support the show by expanding the reach and also helping a friend if you think that this really has some valuable insight then that's a great way to support it If you're hungry for knowledge, you're hungry to grow, to learn, to take that next step in your journey, check out thefreedomlounge.com, my new affordable group coaching program. It's such a success so far. I'm absolutely loving it. Every single month, there'll be a new book that we're focusing on and reading together. There will be an exclusive interview, whether it be with um, someone that is well-known in the realm of self-improvement, personal growth, personal development, an author, a speaker, whoever it may be. It's someone inspirational, exciting every single time. And I'm so excited to announce the next speaker in the Freedom Lounge. And her name is Amelia Harvey. And she's an incredible leader in the realm of spirituality, self-growth, self-love. And this month we're focusing on unconditional self-love, what that looks like. And I'm giving you tons of tools and topics and assignments and things to work on to better yourself. The book that we're going to be reading together is Radical Self-Love by Gala Darling. And that is an incredible book. I'm just finishing reading it a little bit early than everyone else in the group so that I know what I want to be focusing on within the book. But that is going to be a great month. And every single um, month on the 21st is when the new material releases. So today is the 19th that you're listening to this episode. In two days, next month's valuable resources, insights, the video, the assignments, all of that will be included for everyone in the Freedom Lounge. So basically on the 21st, you get all this new material. And then there's the coaching call, so much valuable insight for only $57, which boils down to less than a cup of coffee every day. So I'd love to see you there. If you want to check out more, go to thefreedomlounge.com, check it out, and you can sign up instantly. Next up, if you missed last retreat that I hosted here in Boulder, Colorado, I have exciting news for you. Me and my beautiful friend, Amanda Duran, who most of you probably know from around the the web. She's always active, posting things, sharing things on podcasts. She's incredible. She is coming here. We are hosting a two-day event in Boulder, Colorado called More Than This. The event is going to focus on what more there is to life. If you have limiting beliefs holding you back, if you're wasting your time on perfectionism, if you feel that anxiety gets the best of you all the time, if you're spending so much of your energy caring what other people think or you struggle with 
an obsession of some sorts, this is going to be the event for you to make. It is um, going to be exceptional. I'm so excited. It's going to be epic. And we are inviting 75 women to come to this event. It's going to be a bigger group. But we really wanted to focus on the sisterhood aspect of events and make sure that this group is is powerful with energy and friendships are made and we can all dive deeper and it will be a really great place for just the two audiences of people who follow Amanda and me to be able to come together and create an exceptional weekend together. Now, like I said, it's not until January, so you have plenty of time to book flights, get off work and buy tickets to come to this event and I want you to approach this. If this is something you want to do, first of all, we made it very inexpensive for the value you're receiving because we want to have more people be able to attend this, people who couldn't attend my my first retreat or people who can't um, do the one-on-one coaching quite yet. This is a, a wonderful step. It'll meet you halfway. So it's something that most everyone can cultivate, the funds for, for something like this. We're hosting the base package of uh, the two-day seminar for $3.97 and there will also be two up levels so there'll be a gold package which includes dinner with me and Amanda at my place the night before the event you can sign up for that and then there's also the platinum package which is getting an hour session with both me and Amanda separately so you'll get an hour session with me and then you can have an hour session with Amanda so you can also sign up for that level if you want to do that and you can have the sessions before or after the event most likely after so you can have follow-up on the things that you're implementing after the event and you can set those things up with each of us separately so there are many different levels to meet you wherever you are wherever your heart is but either way this event is going to be a gift for you if you decide yes I'm worth it yes I deserve taking this this solo trip or maybe you grab a few friends and y'all come and you do this together tell yourself yes I'm worth this and I invite you to have the mentality of I deserve this. This is a a part of my self-care. And if if you feel that you're in a place where $3.97 sounds sounds like it's a lot of money, I invite you to instead of having the mentality of I can't afford this, have how can I create the funds for this? And do what you can because there's always a way. There is. I've never been into a situation where I couldn't figure out a way to make something happen. So there's always the way. Whatever obstacles are are in your way right now, you have the choice to get them out of the way and to get your booty over here and to make it to this event because it is going to be an exceptional, I would say life-changing growth inducing event. And I am so excited to meet the women that do come to this 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 in-person seminar because it's going to be fantastic and, and yeah like I said invite a few women maybe have your daughter come your mother come your sister your cousin and y'all get an Airbnb close by make a girl's trip out of it it's going to be fun and and I know there's going to be so many inspirational moments people are going to have or breakthroughs or or being able to bond over the different transitions that you're facing because if I've if I've experienced something already and realized something with these events The people who come are people who, first of all, really care about the growth that they experience in their life, but also there tends to be a theme with the women that come to these things. And for me, what I've noticed is it's a period of transition. Maybe you're leaving something and coming to something else and you want more insight in how to do this gracefully, confidently, comfortably. And at More Than This, you can can discover that. So the link to More Than This will be on the show notes for this episode 123 but you can also go to more than this event.com and sign up instantly there I would go ahead and make that commitment now sign up now get your flights start making everything um, 
and start making everything real. Put it into action and get those dates booked so that you can make it here. So check out those links. All of them will be on the show notes for this. But the real heart and meat of this episode is the story that Bridget has to share. So let's head on over. Welcome to the Mind Body Musings podcast, the show for everyone and anyone that is ready to break free from the dogmatic chains of the health and fitness industry and create their own life free from restrictions. Now, introducing your host, Madeline Moon, a former fitness model gone sane and the author of the popular self-love book, The Perfection Myth. If you dig the show and you're looking for more insight on how to stop food and exercise from controlling your life, check out her website, maddiemoon.com, and grab your free guide. If you're ready to end dieting once and for all, it's time you learn how to pursue real health instead. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I am here with the inspirational, beautiful Bridget Mayer. I am so excited to talk to her today. As I said in the intro, she's the author of The Art Cure, which is, Bridget, I must say, it is the most gorgeous book cover I have ever seen. I loved it. Thank you. I'm, I'm pretty excited about the book cover too. It's pretty what, creative. What, what inspired you to do that? Did you come up with the book cover yourself? Um, I did. Um, and what inspired it was in my book, in the first part of the introduction, I tell a story about my childhood that really defined me at the moment. And it has to do with makeup and getting in trouble for um, uh, using my mother's makeup. And so when I was thinking about uh, possible book covers to illustrate the story. What came to mind was makeup pigment. Um, and I'm also, I, I love, um, there's an Indian holiday, a holiday in India where they throw pigment. And so it was a combination of both those ideas. And I, I really wanted it to uh, speak to creative people. Mm, it, it reminded me a lot of um... Like the color run, have you ever seen those? Like those? Yes, yeah. yes, I have. I've never participated in one. Maybe I will now. Oh yeah, you so should. That would be in your, yes. you're you're into running and like. Well, I'm into running. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. for everyone listening, Bridget's story. I'm so excited for you to share this. But I was talking to her before this call, just saying how like my upbringing was so easy. I would say compared to to Bridget's and the things that you have had to overcome, the things that you've had to work through the, I'm sure the limiting beliefs you've had to uncover in your life about who you are, what you're capable of. It's so inspiring. And I, it took me a while, like your book isn't super long, but I had to really absorb it because when I was reading your story, I felt like there was so much just emotion that I I was putting myself into your shoes as a young girl and the things that you had to overcome. And it was really heavy, but at the same yeah. time, it was so inspiring and so like enlightening to see what you had gone through and how you've been able to overcome that, help others share your story vulnerably and look at what's come from it. It's so beautiful. And 
I don't know. I get goosebumps when I think about you. So (laughs) why don't you tell us your background and your story? And for anyone who hasn't read the book, just give us a good, um, I would say, detailed description of where you've come from and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, well, I I was born in, in a tenement in Jersey City, New Jersey, and it was a pretty rough neighborhood. You could hear gunshots going off all the time, uh, police sirens, and um, basically the streets were covered in garbage. We, we lived in a pretty dirty tenement building, and I, I, I start... I tell these stories in the book, um, so I won't go into them too much in depth, but basically my, my birth mother was, uh, an alcoholic and drug addict and, um, was into prostitution. We had men coming in and out of our apartment. And I, I think that's how on occasion she had money to feed us, uh, and get us food. Um, but she would often leave us for, a few weeks at a time uh, without food or care. And so we had to be really resourceful at a young age and literally climb out the tenement window, go seek out food and steal food or garbage pick through dumpsters and garbage bags and basically uh, scale back into the the building. And, and we, we were in survival mode at that point. Um, there were, I had, five siblings in addition to myself. I never knew my birth father. Uh, we had a pretty dirty apartment with uh, basically one queen-size mattress for six kids to sleep on. Um, so it was pretty bleak. We didn't have toys. Uh, we just had the clothing on our backs. And our life was pretty much in disarray, uh, pretty terrifying. She was physically abusive with us. And this went on for the first nine years of my life. I was in and out of foster care during that time, and I would get taken away from her and my siblings, put into various homes, uh, and then brought back to her when she um, had recovered from some of her drug and alcohol use, which usually didn't last longer than a week or two. Uh, so it was kind of a chaotic childhood. I didn't go to school or learn how to read. Uh, until I was about eight years old. Uh, and, and basically where my story starts changing is I was brought into uh, a family's home that was in um, Hunterdon County, New Jersey, which is a beautiful farm area. Um, and, and basically uh, there's a story in the book where we were abused, we were almost hospitalized, and the state of New Jersey stepped in and had to find us a home a foster home within within a day because uh, it was uh, Thursday night when this happened. It was a Thursday night. So they had to place us by Friday and they couldn't find a foster home in the immediate vicinity. So they kept widening the net uh, to where they would place us. And typically it was not, um, they wouldn't place you uh, over an hour away from where the city office was. So they kept widening the net to find us a home they ended up widening the net three hours away, which is the first home they could find. Um, and so long behold, there's a lovely woman sitting in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, uh, who had put her name into a database saying that she wanted to foster young girls. And so we were taken, myself and my uh, younger sister were taken to her home and uh, stayed there for several months. And so began my relationship with my 
um, parents and family that would end, go on to adopt us a year and a half later. And that's the turning point in my story. Uh, so then basically I started school at that age. I started learning how to read and I really had to catch up to where kids my age were at learning wise, which was very challenging for me. I had suffered a tremendous amount of physical abuse. So I was, uh, really untrusting of people around me and, and, um, my adopted mom likes to say I was almost like a, a scared animal. Uh, you know, I was worried I was going to get hit or get in trouble. Uh, that was what I was accustomed to at the time. Um, so, you know, the beautiful part of the book is that, that story where I end up being adopted. And then, you know, I, my life started somewhat to get normal. I, uh, started going to school. Um, one of the things that was challenging for me at that age was to make friends. And it seemed like everyone around me had these normal families and um, they were very happy and, and they weren't shy. And I could barely look at people in the eye. You know, my, my thing was to look at the floor uh, and look down, um, which it took me years to start uh, turning that around um, and actually be able to look someone or look at someone without feeling shy or like I was going to get in trouble. So I had to go through a lot of emotional adjustments um, that really have, you know, continued my whole life. Uh, I've, I've had various times in my life where I've had challenges and I know that it goes back to some of my childhood. Um, so I went on to go to college I studied art and art history at a, a great university. Um, my parents really taught me the value of hard work uh, through growing up on a farm. Um, my, my adopted dad was a farmer, uh, so every weekend we were helping him on the farm. I was raised around um, animals, and we had a garden, and, and so my life really was quite uh, lovely, um, but still challenging. Um, and, and, and college was really exciting for me. And it was a time where I started to really step into my own person and kind of start throwing off the shackles of, um, uh, family and, and coming into who I was as a young woman and, uh, having an interest in art and art history and, um, working at the university I was going to school at. And I was a track athlete, uh, at Bucknell university. So that, that shifted for me and, um, yeah, so I, I continued through college and, and really excelled. I uh, graduated, and I'm giving you the cliff note version. I, I really uh, get into this a little bit more deeply in the book um, where I started stepping into the art world, which is probably one of the most challenging markets to be in um, professionally. I think a lot of creative people know what I'm talking about. It's tough to find jobs. It's tough to find jobs that actually pay you decently, um, so when I did graduate and started working in a gallery in New York City, I was basically making um, under 10 bucks an hour uh, at the time. And it was really tough to uh, be in New York on that salary. So I was uh, living at home for part of that year. And then I ended up renting um, literally what was a closet in someone's apartment where I could put a mattress and, um, and, and live and survive and, and work in New York City. Um, so I, I just kept building my, 
my contacts and my career and my vision. I was working several jobs and working really hard. And that really was the trajectory of my, my career. And I ended up moving to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in early 2000 and was in this, a similar scenario as where I had been over the years. Um, you know, making five to, five to 10 bucks an hour, having to work two jobs and really scrape together my funds to have a basic life at that time. And I was feeling incredibly frustrated and I was, you know, wondering how other people in the art world were able to make a living and survive. And here I was with um, an incredible education, a great GPA, um, accolades and, and, this great resume, but I still couldn't make a decent salary. And so I started to look around me and, and really question who was doing well in the art world. Uh, at the time I was debating going to graduate school for painting, uh, and decided I, I actually enrolled, um, at the university of Pennsylvania, um, thinking I was going to get my MFA. And after a week I realized, you know what? I'm not sure that this is the right thing for me and I might end up a starving artist if I go down this path with a lot of debt, a lot of college debt. And at the time I was starting a consulting business that was starting to, to pick up steam. And so I made the choice. I, I recognized that I couldn't do both and do them both well. So I decided I would defer um, getting my MFA for a year um, and focus on my art consulting business and see how that would go. And that's where the story really uh, expands as I start talking about that part of my career and how I started meeting clients and um, things started turning around for me. So that's a little bit of the story without giving all of it away. Oh, it's so amazing to hear actually you say it and you speak about it like it's just there's so much that goes on in in each person's background and story that leads up to where they are now but with the adversity that certain people have to face it's just so interesting what direction they end up taking and it's so cool that art was it for you which is cool to me because like I it's it's interesting because my whole family is all artists basically like <laughs> my sister can draw beautifully it's ridiculous yeah, my cousin my cousin like I've never seen someone be able to draw animals so well yeah. and, and they're like interesting she'll do like animals with like human faces almost oh wow and That's she's really so great funny. and my mom's a painter my grandma's a painter my oh, great -grandma, wow. everyone except for me wow everyone and i was holding your book and my mom was like dying to read it before me because she's <laughs> just such a like art person and i was like no hold on i'm gonna read it then you can read it and my sister was the same way so my whole That's family great. is just a bunch of artists and i've never quite uh -huh. understood it and yeah. the love for art but what what do you think it is for you that what like that first memory of you being really enthralled with art like what what does that feel like to you um yeah and and um this is that first story that ties into the book cover which um it was a moment for me where you have to imagine 
Um, there was nothing around me. There were dirty, dirty white walls and no furniture. Um, you know, no toys, nothing to really, no TV, none of the things that kids engage with now to stimulate them. And so I always had to go inside of my mind and my creative impulses and, um, figure out ways to, uh, um, not only play, but just to entertain myself. So, um, when I found this bag of makeup, uh, that my mother had left in the bathroom, um, and I opened up the eyeshadow and stuck my finger in it and it was like, Oh my God, what is this? This is amazing. This blue color. And, um, somehow I knew instinctively that you were supposed to, or I thought you were supposed to, um, wipe this stuff on surfaces and walls. And I remember tearing through that entire makeup bag and literally smearing everything on the wall, um, mascara, eyeliner, lipsticks, eyeshadow, um, and, and feeling a sense of, um, excitement and liberation and, um, uh, just feeling satisfied that I actually was able to, have fun and, and, and use my hands and actually make something. And so I, I'll never forget that moment. And, um, and that's how I often felt when I was making art, whether it was, um, working with clay or painting or drawing, I felt that it was a place where I felt safe. I could go inside my head. I could be with the material and, um, it was a quiet place that I could go and fully be myself. And I knew there was no right or wrong in that place. And it was just a, a place of creative expression. So that, that, that's my early memory of, of art. And then, so I started anchoring to this, um, feeling of expression and, um, solace and, and of a place where I was supposed to be. And, and then as I got older and, and I was actually around creative people, I worked at the theater department at Bucknell University and it was a raucous group of people. And I'd never been in meetings like that where people are incredibly expressive. And um, I felt really excited and comfortable around those types of people. And then when I was in my art classes uh, around artists, it was a similar experience for me of being around the right people and so I just kept anchoring to those feelings and that kept pushing me forward into the art world mm -hmm. yeah wow that's so powerful and out of curiosity I wanted to ask before I forgot this question your your brothers and sisters your siblings do you still yeah. stay in touch where y'all y'all all had different upbringings pretty much right we did. And, um, so I was adopted into, um, my adopted parents had three older boys and they wanted my mom, my adopted mom wanted little girls in her life. So, um, she ended up adopting me and my sister and an older sister. And, um, uh, they've had their challenges with, with drugs and alcohol over the years that, uh, has continued to, um, and it demonized them. And, and so that's been, um, you know, a little bit challenging for them. Uh, and my other siblings with, that weren't adopted with us, they went on to different homes and different places. And um, for a while, I kept up with them. But 
their story um, was a very different story uh, than mine. And again, they also had um, intense drug and alcohol issues. And uh, basically, I, I made a decision um, at a young age that um, it was before high school that being around them was actually pulling me backwards into the life that I had left. And, um, you know, I would continue to worry about them. And, uh, as I got older, I would try to help them. And, and, and I, what I realized is that I had to move on and, and make a mental and physical break from them because, um, uh, they're, were times when I was around them and I would get in trouble just by being around them and things were happening where I just had to say, you know what? I love them. They're, they're my, you know, family. However, for my own life and to take care of myself, I have to move away from them and move on. Um, and it took me years to finally, uh, not feel guilty and give myself permission to have a successful life. Um, and, and, and move on from my birth family, which I, I have. Mm-hmm. Wow. That takes, yeah. that takes a lot of self-respect and awareness. And even I would say courage because I can't imagine how difficult that would be to make that, yeah. that switch or that move, but you're really honoring yourself by doing that. Yeah. And, and there was a point, I'll be honest with you, Maddie, there was a point where I, I didn't understand internally why I was, you know, not a drug addict or an alcoholic, why I, you know, went to college and how I was starting to succeed where, um, my siblings were all just uh, crumbling and and just having a hard time with addiction. And, And so it became something that not only was I aware of it and kind of hyper aware of it, but it also frightened me that I wondered if at any point in my life a switch would be turned on where all of a sudden I would realize actually you're not successful, you're an alcoholic or you're a drug addict. And and so there came a point in my life where I just started working so hard and just being an overachiever to put as much distance between myself and my past as I could to actually convinced myself that I was going to be fine and that I had moved on. So, um, there was a a point where, um, you know, I realized like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm through this. I'm not my past. I'm my own person. I have an incredibly successful life. I developed it. I built it and I can relax and not, not live in fear of the past catching up to me. Mm -hmm. Your book jacket it says that anyone can, you know, achieve the life of their dreams and that even though the art industry seems too difficult to be in, if you put your mind to it, basically you can, you can make it happen. What do you think was one of those main key components in your journey that made it possible to be so successful in the art industry? Um, that's a great question. It, I think the first place it started was um, when I was in college, um, people around me, I I went to a a really good engineering liberal arts college where they weren't really known for art and that was not a big department. And 
Um, I remember at the time I, I had to declare a major my sophomore year and I knew I wanted to be an art major and my parents were not that happy with that choice. I think they would have preferred me to go into teaching or biology or political science or business. And um, I knew that I wanted to be in the arts. And, and so I, I think especially creative people, they have family and friends that love them and care about them and care about their futures that are trying to dissuade them from following their passion and following their dream of whether it's being an artist or a performing artist or, um, you know, even an athlete or something that might be against the, um, the norm of our culture. And I just kept staying true to what I wanted to do, even though I knew um, my parents weren't that happy with my, my choice. And, it, it continued um, after college where um, I talk about all the places that I lived in um, a several year period. I lived in New York. I moved to Taiwan uh, uh, in Taipei for a year and a half. I moved to San Francisco and then I moved back to Philadelphia. And I remember friends and family were like, wow, like you seem like you're all over the place. You seem a little bit scattered. And um, why don't you just stay in the area and like, why do you have to travel and move around so much? And you're always moving from place to place. And I had this idea that I wanted to experience as much as I could at a college before I did settle down um, and get married and, and focus on a family and, and just focus on the job I would have over the next uh, five to 10 years. So my, my point is that you should, I believe you should follow your true north and whatever that is, your authentic calling for your soul, even despite people that you love and who love you um, and them telling you to do something else. And so that that was the first part of my success. And I, I just kept anchoring to um, I'm creating my life. These are things that I'm feeling compelled to do. And every place I went, I had incredible job experiences that kept propelling me forward into more success. And it wasn't a, a straight line. Um, and I think now it's more um, normal for people to jump in and out of jobs and try even try different industries. Um, there's a lot more um, flexibility in the marketplace and people don't judge your resume like they used to judge it. Um, but I, I would say, you know, my first thing was following exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was reading your story about jumping around, I'm just like thinking in my head, like, that sounds great. And there is a lot of, um, I, I don't know what the word is, maybe just like negative stigmas around people who have jumped from job to job to job. But like, why? Because we have to figure out what we like. And if we don't try different things, we'll never know. Yeah. One that, of the, absolutely. One of the things that I talked about in my last episode with um, the guest was entitlement. And hearing your story, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like maybe entitlement wasn't something that you ever really struggled with because you never really were just, you weren't, I mean, obviously you had a wonderful upbringing with the mother who adopted you, but you probably learned early on not to necessarily expect that the world owes you. Yeah. And so 
to me as an outsider, it looks like it looks like that's what went on, and that's why it was probably not I wouldn't say easier, but simpler for you to jump from the jobs and and the locations to figure out what you want because it's not like someone owed you or you needed someone else's approval or you were living your life according to other people's uh, ideals of you. You just, you didn't you didn't owe anyone anything. No one owed you anything. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when you're born into like poverty and you have nothing and, and, you know, I, I, I faced starvation a few times where, you know, I didn't eat for almost a week and, um, an extreme, like painful physical abuse from my parent that was supposed to be my protector. It just kind of throws the world open in a different way. And, um, when I was adopted, I felt so grateful and, I, I remember just feeling like I could relax just a little bit more. And, and, you know, I had a bed to sleep in. I had clothes to wear. I had a shower. I could take a shower. Um, I wasn't starving anymore. Um, my environment kind of uh, normalized. And I remember feeling incredibly grateful for that. And I had an awareness and I grew up with this awareness because I had to be aware of possible danger for me and, and trying to protect myself as much as I could. So I've had um, a sensitivity and an awareness um, about what's happening for me inside, what's happening outside of me um, and what's happening with the people around me. So there were so many things after I was adopted and went to college and started working that I just felt really grateful to be alive and to be living in a normal place in my life. And, um, I, I know the worst of life. I've lived it. And I also know the best of life because I've lived that and I'm continuing to live it. Um, and working with artists and creative types, um, typically they're, they're incredibly humble people and, um, you know, knowing how that has felt inside of me, my, my job right now has been to work with artists, um, coaching them and, and teaching them and, and basically getting them to pull out the best of who they are to share that with the world. Um, so I, you know, I, I and my, my adopted parents, um, they also fostered a sense of, um, us appreciating what we had and and working hard for what we had. My dad was definitely a worker. Um, He had a corporate job and then his quote hobby was farming and and it was really hard work. We made hay in the summers and I had to feed animals twice a day and pick rocks and weed gardens and muck out horse stalls. So um, I didn't grow up with really any sense of entitlement. And I, I learned pretty quickly at a young age that, what hard work really was and that I actually enjoyed it. It shifted my perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's really great. I mean, that's a beautiful thing that's come out of all of this is that that's not something necessarily that you expect from people. And that's a really hard thing for many of us to break. Now I'm curious, and this is kind of an interesting question, but (laughs) I'm curious about when you started to get this success, when you started to create the success, did you ever have moments where you felt almost, 
I wouldn't, I don't know what the right word is. So like when people come to you and they want you to uh, support their work or have their work in your gallery, did you ever get to a place where you had to tone down your ego because you were feeling like, oh, well, like I'm successful now and I've got this all down and like you think you can work with me. Have you ever had thoughts like that or have you always been, <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? Cause like, no, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, um, one of the things that I've constantly had to work on over the years, and I think um, women will relate to this and uh, female creatives, um, you know, I, I've often had low self-esteem. Um, I've had, you know, I've been on Anderson Cooper, um, a show he did called On the Rise. I've been featured in the New York Times magazine. I've been profiled in magazines and, um there's a part of my brain that, um, you know, I think like a businesswoman, I'm like, you know, this is great. I'm excited for the PR. I'm excited that this will further people finding the art artists that I'm representing and the artworks that I'm showing. And, um, that's part of my brain. And the other part of my brain is, um, you know, am I worthy? Do I deserve this? And, um, and so I, I've carried that throughout my life. And one of the things, um, I'm, I'm, you know, facing right now is I'm, I've, I've done workshops and speaking and I'm, I'm sharing my success more. And, um, it's really caused me to take a look at the things that I have accomplished, um, with my business and with some of the artists I represent and also what I've created financially and say, wow, um, I've created this. I created it from scratch. I created it with um, no clients and no money when I started. I created it with my own ideas. And um, so I like to stay centered. And um, I wouldn't say I have a big ego. If, if anything, I'm working on making my ego bigger, if that makes mm, sense to yeah, you. Totally. And my husband's always saying to me, you need to um, share like what you've been through and um, and let people know who they, who you are right now, because sometimes, um, you're so nice and people just have no idea what you've accomplished and who they're talking to. And, um, and I think that's something I'm stepping into more and more with some of the public work that I'm doing right now. And, um, my, my, really my perspective is to be of service to artists and clients and, and people around me professionally. And, um, and so I, I think, sometimes when you have a service mentality that balances out your ego. Um, however, I will say to be in a boardroom selling an art collection or working with corporate clients or working with wealthy patrons like I have, um, I do have to um, have a little more of an ego to uh, be able to say some, say to someone, Hey, I know a lot more than than you know about art. I've spent the last uh, 18 years working on this. So why don't you trust me and open your mind to what I have to say about art or whatever it is I'm presenting and actually assert my expertise. Um, and I am comfortable doing that because typically I am, um, I'll say, fighting for artists or um, fighting for creative projects to be out there in the world. And, and that's definitely a realm that I'm incredibly comfortable in. Right. I love that. And I think that does tie a lot in with what we we're just talking about with entitlement, like you being more humble in your work and maybe needing to 
to fill in more of that part of you that says like I do know what I'm talking about like I know this and like your words are so important I love that that's beautiful so yeah here's another question for you this one just popped in my head um and I've always wondered this so you're the perfect person to ask okay (laughs) so art totally confuses me first of all like I like really weird art um like for example right in front of me I have this (laughs) I have this picture of like a human I guess that kind of runs in the family, the whole, like, animal-human combo. Uh-huh. Like, my cousin drawing, like, human faces on animals. Well, I have, like, this deer, like, wearing this tuxedo, and he's just, like, hanging out against, like, a chair. Like, a really weird piece of art. Um, like, almost, like, surrealist art. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that, to me, like, speaks. I love that. It's kind of creepy. It's kind of cool. Um, kind of like Alice in Wonderland a little bit, but uh, more contemporary. Yes. Okay. Yes. How did you know? That was awesome. And like, yeah. I also love big eyes. I've always Oh, you that. like big eyes? Totally. You know, and th- I, there's a movie. I haven't even seen that movie yet. There's a movie about that. I've seen it twice. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. It has my favorite, one of my favorite actors in it. Um, Christoph, uh, Walt, uh, huh. Walt. yeah, he's amazing. I think he's, I will check that out. That's on my list. Yes. Check that out. Um, but what I was going to say is the things I don't understand, I do not understand like abstract or like a big blue circle, you know, or a big blue square and how that can run for millions of dollars. What, what's going on there? Can you, (laughs) can you explain like how, how can that person, how can that Um, person do that? Like charge that and value that that much, you know? Okay. (laughs) That's a deep question. Um, I can scratch the surface a little bit, but it's interesting that you bring up, um, not understanding abstraction. Um, I opened my gallery in Philadelphia in 2001. I was 26 years old. I had a love and passion for abstract painting. And Philadelphia at the time was known as more of a figurative art town and a landscape kind of place. And um, people were coming out of some of the academies there where that's really what they were teaching, how to draw and paint the figure and, and landscape and um uh, there were some contemporary graduate programs and I, I wanted to show art that reflected my interest and my love of abstract painting. So I started finding these young walking out of graduate school, abstract painters and working with them. And I remember someone, a gallery dealer in Philadelphia, when they heard I was opening a gallery, they were kind of walking around the neighborhood and I happened to be outside and we were talking about what I was going to show. And they were saying, you won't do well with that. And that's going to be really tough for you. And, um, basically being really negative about it. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to show what's most authentic to me and find the artists that match that and bring that to the public and educate them about abstract painting. And that was my initial focus with my program. And what I started realizing was um, people loved abstract painting. There was something about it that they loved, but they felt insecure about not being able to articulate what it was that they loved about it or what they were looking at. So um, my job became um, almost like psychological, getting them to uncover what they were responding to. And um, and it could be something, like you said, the big blue 
uh, abstract painting with a square in it. It it could be something as simple as the color blue uh, that they were responding to, um, uh, or the way the paint was applied to the surface, or um, intellectually not understanding how someone could uh, move through a process and get the end result that they were looking at, or um, in the case of a circle or a square or some of the symbols that might be embedded in the painting, um, what they meant and, and decoding it. So um, I became this guide for people to um, get them to explore um, what it was that they were responding to looking at the art. Um, so that's one of my passions and the core of my program are abstract artists. Um, but there's a huge art market and there are artists that have moved through history. Um, you know, the two that pop into my head are Jackson Pollock and, and Mark Rothko. Um, and we've had these art historical movements where, um, and Andy Warhol comes to mind. He's a pop artist. There were times when these guys were starving. People weren't buying their, their paintings. Um, Jackson Pollock could barely sell his work. Um, uh, People thought Mark Rothko was crazy for what he was painting. And Andy Warhol was painting these um, Campbell soup can paintings that he couldn't even sell for $100 at the time. And it was just uh, kind of a moment in, in art history where people weren't understanding what was being made. Um, there were certain people at the time that could see the value that started buying these paintings for nothing. Um, and there's another more contemporary artist, Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, who was around in the 80s and up until the late 90s. And he was another great artist that couldn't sell his work that now they sell for millions of dollars. So there are different vehicles in the art market where um, as things started coming through New York and London and um, being valued at a higher price, um, and, and it's correlated to the stock market and um, the values of stocks and, and, and people having more money and placing more value on contemporary art. Uh, people then decided, certain people in the art world, that things were worth more, worth more than, than what they were being valued at at the time. Um, and you start, you started seeing crazy prices coming out of galleries and, um, so it, it, it's that's a long conversation about the value of art and, and how things um, how and why things are priced in the millions of dollars. And um, part of that now is that um, it's rare to have access to some of these pieces. They're in private collections and in museums. And it's just where the marketplaces value the artist in history and then the artwork historically overall. Um that probably didn't answer much of it, but um, it's a crazy market. And I'm, I'm in the, um, I started in the emerging market where uh, paintings and works on paper were priced at, you know, $500 to $2,000. And um, my artist started growing in stature. And as you do more in the marketplaces, uh, typically your pricing goes up and, uh, people start valuing what you're doing more. Um, and so that has grown for me and the artists I represent the last uh, 16 years. Um, and then certainly I've worked with artists um, who are at the top end of their game where their paintings are selling for fifty to $70,000. And 
Um, and again, that's kind of another marketplace within the art world. And then there's um, a top tier of what's called secondary market artist, um, basically dead artist. And, you know, their works can sell in the millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting, fascinating um, world to be in. Um, and as someone like myself who grew up in sheer poverty, um, one of the things I had to face at a certain point working in the gallery world was, do I belong here? And I don't think that I belong here because it doesn't feel comfortable and this is not what I grew up in. And um, I'm not wealthy and I didn't grow up with money or privilege. And I think a lot of that's in the art market. And um, that's one of the things I've had to overcome. And what I realized uh, was that I could create my own place in the market that I wanted to be in, working with the artists that I wanted to exhibit and create the art world that I wanted to operate in. And that's something that I'm, I'm pushing artists and creative people to do that. You can create the world that you want to work in. If it doesn't exist, it means that it's up to you to create it. And one of the reasons I started my gallery was that there wasn't a place at the time in Philadelphia exhibiting the art that I wanted to look at and I wanted to buy myself and, So I I realized there was an opportunity to actually create that type of gallery in the marketplace and um, and create the world that I wanted to work in and the people that I wanted to be around. I love that. That's a lot like the um, the idea of becoming the person that you wish you had whenever you were younger. And yeah. you're, you're, yeah. you're molding that world that you want and you're seeing that gap in your space and how it's needed to, it's, it's a very needed thing in this world and you're the one that's filling it. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. So I think that's a pretty awesome place to, to, to leave off. This has been just such a great conversation. We do have a quick fire round And I need to change that name because some of the questions are kind of tougher, so it's not necessarily (laughs) quick fire. Um, But before we head there, let people know where they can connect with you. Okay, great. So um, I have my website where I talk about my um, workshops and my one-on-one coaching with creative types, and that's BridgetMayer.com. And my gallery is Bridget Mayer Gallery. And there's a website for that. And I'm mainly hoping that people will go on Amazon and order my book called The Art Cure, A Memoir of Abuse and Fortune. And and it's available right now on Amazon. Uh, so if you click on Amazon and, and type in The Art Cure, it, it should come up. Yes. And everyone get this book. I will make sure that I have <laughs> all of the links to all of her things and her places on the show notes for this episode, uh, 123, 123. And yeah, you'll want to go there and check them all out. So here is the quick fire round. Great. All right. Three words to describe you. Ooh, someone tenacious, loving, hardworking. Mm, those are good. If you could pick one, because I'm sure you have a, a ton, that's probably a really hard question, but like a, a favorite artist or a style. Oh, hands down, Jean-Michel Basquiat. People know him as Basquiat. He's a kind of a graffiti urban artist. He's dead, but the work is amazing. Okay. I'm writing that down. I'll check it out. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world besides where you currently live, where would it be? 
Um, Hawaii. Oh, good choice. <laughs> what part of Hawaii? Maui. We, uh, my husband and I love Maui. It's pretty amazing. I love, um, I don't know if I've been to Maui, but I've been to Kauai and I've been somewhere else. I, I can't even believe I don't remember, but I was pretty young, but I, I love it there. It's amazing. Yes. What was your breakfast? <laughs> what was my breakfast? Um, well, we started our call early, so my breakfast so far was water. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. Gluten-free, vegan. But I love, I love food. I love I love smoothies and I love juicing. Those are typically what I, what I drink for breakfast because I, my whole thing is have as much energy as I can to do everything that I want to do. So yeah. Do you ever like make a smoothie and then, so this is, this is what happened to me this morning. I made a smoothie and like it was too watery. So I added a, a ton more ice yes. and then it like has so much volume and it's huge, but it's delicious. So I eat it, the whole thing and then my <laughs> belly is just like so oh. full. Yes. My, um, my favorite smoothie is, um, you, uh, choose two apples, um, frozen, um, raspberries, uh, half a banana, um, blueberries frozen or fresh. And then, um, I love cacao powder and cacao nibs, which are really healthy. A lot of runners used to, uh, eat that type of food and the Amazon and, um, uh, and then, Chia seeds and flaxseed powder with ice. That's my smoothie go-to. Wow. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so you juice the apples and then you put it into the smoothie? Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. I need to try that. I, I actually put uh, sweet cacao nibs in my smoothie this morning too. It's oh so good. Yeah. it's it's. I put it in yogurt as well. Do you ever have matcha? Like yes. matcha powder? Because I put that in there yeah. too. And, I, and that was actually my first time of matcha. I know everyone. Ah, <gasps> oh, what? But yeah, it was my first time of matcha. It's kind of interesting. It's a different flavor. It's supposed to um, increase your fertility and um, stuff like that, apparently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what yeah. I need right now. <laughs> Not really, but it's tasty. So that's good. Um, okay. What's your morning routine like? Oh, I love this. And I teach this in a workshop that I do with artists. So um, the first thing I love to do is um, literally when I open my eyes and I know I'm getting ready to get up, I and I don't sleep with an alarm, by the way, I just and I don't sleep with any technology in my room. Um, I, uh, I will open my eyes and I will immediately start thinking about what I'm grateful for. And um, I'll often turn and look at my husband and he, he's usually sleeping and I'll think why I'm grateful for him. Um, and then I get out of bed and I get my phone and turn it on and I go to YouTube and, um, uh, I love, there are these morning, um, videos by Jason Ellis and their positive affirmation, um, soundtracks and I'll put them on while I'm like brushing my teeth and, uh, making tea and coffee and um, I'll just listen to it for like 10 minutes. Um, then I sit down at my table and um, there's a book that a friend recommended by Joseph Murphy called The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. And he talks about how in the morning before you're fully awake, uh, your your brain is like a sponge it's also like this when you're sleeping at night. And, and But especially when you wake up in the morning, a lot of people start their day with a lot of negative thoughts and you're not even potentially aware of what you're saying to yourself. So 
I like to implant as much positivity into my brain as early as I can. So um, I recommend that book. And, and so I'll sit down and I will write out affirmation statements, um, starting with I am statements about myself. Um, I'll write down things that I'm grateful for. And then I have this money routine that I go through where I write down positive statements around money. Um, and my business and the things that I'm, I'm working on manifesting. Um, so I do that. And then usually at that point, my husband's awake and we like to go for a morning walk for a half hour in our neighborhood. Um, we've been doing this for a few months now and it's now part of our routine. And, um, if I have time, I will run on the treadmill and lift weights and I do yoga a few times a week. So I like to start off my day that way. That is a heck of a morning routine. Yeah. <laughs> but and it's I'm awesome. Efficient. It's only an hour. It sounds like a lot, but it takes me an hour or less to do this. And it sets me up for an incredible day. Yeah. I, I think it's really important too. Like I, I waver, like sometimes I'll be really uh, serious about making sure that I get all of my, my morning routine things done, which sound very similar to you. It's gratitude, manifestation, uh, mantras, but then sometimes I can feel so overwhelmed by all of the things that I just stop doing it. And yeah. I, I have to find that balance of where I'm not feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. You know? I think, um, here's the thing too, Maddie. I think sometimes people make it complicated where they're like, I don't have time to do this or that, but literally I'm walking around like listening to stuff in the morning. It's not like I'm just sitting there and, um, I'm, it takes me like under a minute to lay there and think of what I'm grateful for. And, it's so much better than just saying, Oh my God, I have this meeting. I'm, I'm really worried about or Oh, am I going to get paid today? Or what bills do I have to pay? Or, um, you know, just some of the negative things that, that are scary that creep up in life. And it's just kind of reengineering your brain and it doesn't take a lot of time. You could just spend 10 minutes doing a few things in the morning and it would set you up for an awesome day. Yeah, that's true. And I'll make sure yeah. I have the links to everything you just listed in the show notes. If anyone wants to check out the YouTube channel, oh, yeah. the book, that all sounds great. Absolutely. Um, do you have any pets? Oh my God. We have two dogs, um, Buddy and Luca and Luca's a cockapoo, um, uh, poodle mix and Buddy's a lab pit bull mix. And they're like best friends. They're adorable. Buddy. That is the cutest name. That's part of my morning routine too, playing with my dogs and mm -hmm. they're so loving and, um, we don't have children yet. We're working on that. And, uh, but so I love my dogs. Like they're my kids right now. Oh, so cute. <laughs> um, what is one of your biggest turn ons in your partner? I mean, like it could be anything from humility to, uh, humor, anything like that. Um, he is an incredible person with a big heart and, it's funny when I look at him sometimes I, I just I'm amazed at what a beautiful person he, he is not just ex on the exterior but um I love his smile and I love his eyes I love that that's yeah. so sweet yeah hmm three people you'd invite to your perfect dinner party three people I would invite to my perfect dinner party oh, I would invite Basquiat, I would invite, um, Andy Warhol and I would invite Tony Robbins. Mm -hmm. 
he's in my list. He's mine too. But do you know him? No, I've um I love Tony's company. I've I've worked with a lot of his coaches personally. I've done his leadership seminars and I've I've done a lot of the workshops and I've I've volunteered at them. That's how I met my husband. Um I I just I've his books have um reading um Awaken the Giant Within. I read it in early 2000 and that changed my life with debt and money and thinking and goal setting. And I just, I love what he's doing on the planet. He is a, a podcast guest inspiration for me. So Yay, I'm, I'm uh, I'll be thinking about you and Tony Robbins talking about success on your podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Cause it's, it, it, I just feel that it has to happen. So if anyone listening knows any way to make it happen, you would be my, 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 my I don't know, my saving grace, whatever. I would love you. Um, yes, he is amazing. So last question I'll pick. If you were to cast anyone to play you in a movie, who would it be? I would say Reese Witherspoon popped into my head. And I will say that I would love it if someone turned my book into a movie or um you know, one of those lifetime movies, I, I totally see it. Um, there was a movie that came out called Room. Um, and it's about an intense story. And it's a great movie. And it won some awards. And I thought, you know, this is my my story could be a movie. So I would cast Reese Witherspoon. You know, I actually see that as well. Like your story <laughs> would make a great a yeah. great movie, a, you know, a lifetime movie. That'd be fantastic. So I'm going to be thinking about you <laughs> having your book turned into a movie. <laughs> thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your insight, and your wisdom and, and this new topic that's so unfamiliar to me and just kind of educating all of us on it. So thank you so thank much. You, Bridget. Maddie. Have a great week and um, to your listeners um, out there and especially women and creative women I really believe in the power of women and the power of truth that we all have inside of us and being on this planet to express it and live, live that is what you're doing with your life and your passion and your career. And I hope that my story might inspire some of you to, to step into that more. So thank you for listening. Yes, I completely agree. Everyone, go to the show notes to check out her book, to check out her links, to get all the links to the amazing things we talked about today. That is for episode 123. 123. <laughs> <laughs> it looks Thank funny you. when I say it. Um, <laughs> yes. So head on over there, get those, get all those goodies. And if you haven't yet signed up for my free course, How to Powerfully Live Your One Life, you can sign up for that there. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You guys are amazing. I'll see you soon.